1: Uh, the opportunity we have to gather week by week and to study and to um, celebrate the goodness of God and and to learn. And there's just so much in God's Word that we want to embrace, uh, that we want to take to ourselves. And so I pray that you'd be with us now as we study again this topic of Christian contentment. Lord, give us strength to learn the lessons and put them into practice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you have a handout uh, on uh, this morning's topic, uh, the Evils and Excuses of a Murmuring Heart. Um, I want to do, as I've done every week, just a little bit of review on what we, where we've been in this class. Some of you have been with us the whole time, and others uh, really maybe just here for the first week. Um, but fundamentally, I, I just want to share with you that Philippians 4 is the passage that you would go to if you want to talk about the topic of Christian contentment. Um, you'd go first and foremost to Philippians 4. If someone could read that for us, Philippians 4, 11 through 13 marvelous, marvelous passage. So much to learn there, so many things. And it's really, it's both encouraging, isn't it? And convicting to know that you have now had 168 more hours to practice since we last met. You've had another week to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation. You had that opportunity. And uh, I think we would, um, I think we would all of us say, this is a work in progress. Uh, I don't think any of us would be able to join with the Apostle Paul and make that assertion, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. We've talked about the word content, the word that he used means self-sufficient, and we should understand that not in a, in a worldly sort of way, uh, as though you know, that's that arrogant self-sufficiency that is the, really the root of, of all self-salvation in the world that doesn't need Christ, doesn't need a Savior, salvation by work. We're not talking about that at all but rather more similar to God and his aseity, his from-selfness, where God doesn't need anything in creation. God doesn't need the creature at all. He doesn't need us for anything. That's very humbling when you con- contemplate that. But Paul says, I've somewhat entered into that m- mentality. It's not so much s- self-sufficiency, but God-sufficiency. Having God, having Christ, I don't need anything from creation. Those things are blessings, a healthy way of looking at life is we're thankful for the blessings. We enjoy them. We love being with the people of God. We love our spouses, our families. That's, that's not a cold, distant feeling. But the thing is, I don't have to have them. such that if they were removed, if I became a widower or if a woman became a widow, your life would end and then nothing good could come. We know that that's not true, actually, that we, we can have fruitful lives even if, if major conduits of blessing are shut down. We can continue to serve God and love Him and and be fruitful and productive. We don't have to have anything in this world. And that's a freeing thing, isn't it? To not be so clingy and dependent to the people around you that you have to have them notice the good things you do. They have to thank you or you're going to get surly and frustrated at them, etc. To just be free and to serve God. It's a beautiful way to be, but it's a work in progress. We would all say this is something that we've not necessarily learned in any and every situation we've looked uh, week after week at burroughs uh, jeremiah burroughs who is a puritan in the 17th century Uh, he wrote this book burroughs actually was involved in the westminster assembly he gave us that westminster shorter catechism he and his co-workers there Um, anyway he wrote this book called rare jewel of christian contentment he gave us this definition someone read that for us isn't that a marvelous marvelous description and it's so fruitful i was pondering today i was putting these two together Putting these two together. Uh, Paul says he's learned the secret. There's a secret to be learned. He even tells you what it is. I can do everything through him who, what, strengthens me. That contentment's a a matter of strength. It's a matter of a supernatural supply of strength and power. It's a strong thing to be content. We're going to be looking at the dark side today, that of being discontent or the murmuring side. It's something we need to do. Part of that sanctification process is both to be attracted to the positive and repulsed from the negative. We'll get into all that. But it's a very strong thing to be sweet in your disposition when you're going through trials. That's, that's incredible strength. So, as I was putting these two together, strength and the word sweet, I was thinking of all kinds of powerful uh, illustrations. Like, you know what came to me was Samson, right? Remember how that lion came on him and he ripped it to shreds and then came back later and there was some honey in it? What a weird thing. I mean, have you ever seen that? I've never seen that in my life. The Bible covers some strange ground. And you remember what Samson did. I wouldn't have done this, but he scoops the honey out and he's eating it out of the carcass of the lion. What in the world? That's a bit odd. But at any rate, it gave gave him that riddle that he used at his wedding. Remember that whole thing? Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong something sweet. That whole thing just kind of came to life in me as I saw... The kind of strength that it takes to be sweet in a trial. And then the lion kind of became a a metaphor for Satan. You know, he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's coming after you. And, you know, if you can, as a spiritual Samson, rip it to shreds. You know, there's sweetness in the middle of all that. That might make it in my book. It might not. That's a little weird. That's right on the edge. But it's almost like an allegory or something like that. So I thought, are there other illustrations of supernatural displays of sweetness, a sweet spirit in the midst of extreme circumstance, and my, my mind uh, brought me to Joseph, who went through all those trials with his brothers, and and one of the one of the sweetest, I would say, one of the sweetest verses in the whole Bible, that's relevant to this is Genesis fifty twenty one. Genesis fifty twenty says very famously when his brothers were terrified of him after his father died, Jacob died, they were afraid he was going to kill him. And he said, do not be afraid. You know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, that he might bring about the salvation of many. And then it says, after that, he said, I will take care of you and your little ones. And he spoke kindly to them. Now, you think about that, that statement. That's Genesis 50, 21. He spoke kindly to them. Do you realize what strength of character that took? I mean, they were really wretched to him. They were were murderous. And instead, he's so far beyond that. He just sees the providence of God. And to be able to be that content in the plan of God and not hold vendettas or bitterness against anyone, just to have a sweet spirit. Don't you want that? I yearn for that. I'd, be able, I'd love to be that kind of person. So anyway, that's, that's not even on the handout. And we didn't really have any chance of finishing the handout today anyway, so we're, we're in deep trouble. But let's just walk through it. Last week, we saw the excellence of Christian contentment the excellence. And we walk through some of the ways that Christian contentment is excellent. By contentment, let's just start here. We we give God his due worship. God deserves worship and praise from us all the time. It's not a part-time job. And so by Christian contentment, you're able to give God excellent worship. But then even within that, if you are going through severe affliction and you meet this criteria that Burroughs gives, you've got a sweet, quiet, inward, gracious frame of spirit that's freely submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal, even though it's hurting you deeply. That is the best praise and worship you'll ever give God in your whole life. You'll never be more excellent than that. It's a beautiful praise and worship. But just at any rate, to learn the secret of Christian contentment means you you are settled in to a consistent pattern of, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to praise Him. I'm going to worship Him all the time no matter what He does. I'm going to praise Him. That's beautiful. We were created for that. And as I've said before, God is as, as worthy of praise now as the last time you were happy with God. You remember that? When you were happy with Him and, oh, God's so good. I love Him. He's, he's like, well, he's, He hasn't changed. He's every bit as praiseworthy now. Anyway, secondly, by contentment, there is much exercise of grace. That word exercise is you're strengthened in the graces of the Christian life. Thanksgiving, humility, whatever graces there are, they're strengthened in contentment. If you're discontent, you're not going to be strengthened that day. You're actually displaying weakness. So there's strengthening of grace. Thirdly, by contentment, the soul is fitted or, or sized up, or we could use simply the word prepared for mercy. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives you more grace, gives you more mercy. If you'll just be stable under him, if you'll be quiet under his hand, he will pour grace on you. But if you're murmuring, complaining like we're going to talk about today, you won't receive mercy that day. You're going to miss blessings. Fourthly, by contentment, you're going to be fitted or prepared for service. There will be things you can do for him. But if you are murmuring, angry, discontent, and frustrated, you're not going to be able to serve him that day. You'll miss the good works he has prepared for you to do. Fifthly, by contentment, you'll be delivered from temptation. This is a very powerful argument for contentment. Content people are hard to tempt. Discontent people are easy to tempt. So whatever temptations you may imagine in your life or in the world, when when Satan maneuvers you into a self-pitying, discontent frame of spirit, he's got you. He will be able to lead you at that point to patterns of sin that you ordinarily would be set against. Sixthly, contentment draws comfort from things not possessed. Yeah, remember we saw that we said this is amazing how you can actually be happy in what you don't have. In two categories, those things that you don't have yet. Someday you will because they're promised to you like heaven. Resurrection body. You can be content with that. I don't have it yet, but I'm so filled with hope. And contentment and hope are very similar. They're actually maybe even the same thing. And so you know, you're just so filled with hope, so filled with delight, and you don't even have most of your blessings yet. Every, every blessing in the heavenly realms, it'll become physical for you someday at the second coming of Christ, which so I get to preach on today. Today I get to preach on the second coming of Christ. Isn't that exciting? What an incredible, incredible journey the book of Revelation is. But, but just, I can be content in things that are promised to me, but I don't have them yet. But secondly, I can be content in things that are not directly promised to me, and then it seems God's saying no. I can be content when he says no to me. I can be praying for the healing of a loved one, or I can pray for a specific job where they get into a certain graduate program or certain things that we want that we think are good things, and they might well be, but God says no, or maybe even not yet. And we can be content with his no. How do you do that, by the way? How do you be content with God telling you no? How can you actually rejoice in that and delight in that? Because you love Him and trust Him? Very good. Yeah. Aren't you glad that you don't have a sugar daddy for a heavenly father? He's like, He's not going to give you whatever you want. He's, no, God's tough. I mean, He's tough. He doesn't make it easy for us. He's like, He knows what we can handle and it's far more than we think we can. He's like, I can't take any more of this. Yes, you can. And you will. <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying God doesn't care. He's very compassionate. But He's going to put you far beyond what you ever thought you could do. Go ahead, Dave. You know, it's interesting. Jeremiah Burroughs, he's pretty tough about this. He talks about uh, Rachel. Do you remember when Rachel was barren? Remember? Do you remember what she said to her husband? Give me children or I'll die. He's like, am I in the place of God? I mean, I can't, I can't do that. But do you know what, what ended up taking her out of the world? What killed her? Benjamin. Benjamin's birth. It was like, give me children and I'll die. And, and he's not saying she shouldn't have wanted children. It's not that. But there's something wrong with her attitude there. There's nothing wrong with... A barren woman praying that she might have a child. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't you sense a, a, a sinful urgency in Rachel when she says to her husband, Give me children or I'll die? And it's just, it seemed to Burroughs anyway, ironic that in the end she died in child, childbirth. So it's like, do you really, are you sure you really want this thing you're begging for? Um, so it's, it's just an interesting illustration. Whatever you think about that illustration, it's true what Dave said. There's some things that in the end we look back and we're so glad we didn't get them. But at the time, they seem like the, just the right thing. All right, so contentment, a uh, content man may expect a reward. There's reward in that. I mean, a lot of it is you're not going to get it in this life. So when you go through a trial and affliction very courageously and in a faith-filled, sweet demeanor, there's almost like God doesn't owe us anything. But there is that sense, isn't there, in Hebrews 6, where it says God is not unjust. He will not forget your labor and the love you've shown him. That word, unjust, is a very interesting word. To some degree, if you serve God sacrificially and faithfully, you should expect a reward for that. That's biblical. You should expect that God will be pleased with it and commend you for it, because he promised that he would. And so, if you are content in a very tempting situation to be discontent, you may expect a heavenly reward for that. And I think we should want it. We should want rewards. People are squeamish about this, like, talk about reward. But Jesus just puts it right out there. He's actually, in Matthew 6, doing everything he can that you won't lose your reward. Don't store up treasure on earth. Don't don't do your work so everyone can praise you and see you. Because then you'll have your reward in full. I want you to have heavenly rewards. So when you give to the needy, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. And don't, don't announce all you're giving with trumpets and all that, because then you're gonna get your reward here on earth. And I, I want you to have a heavenly reward. He, he openly is appealing to us that we would have maximum rewards. And then as we said before, by contentment, this is the most excellent you'll ever be. This is the most, your character will never shine more brightly than in Christian contentment. All right, that was last week, that was excellence. Now this week, we're gonna look at the dark side. We're gonna look at the negative side. All right. And that is the evils and the excuses, very briefly, the excuses of a murmuring heart. All right. But first of all, what, what does Burroughs mean by murmuring? It's not a common word, but what does it mean, a murmuring heart? I think complaining would be the, mo- the simplest word. Murmuring is like the, one of those onomatopoeic words, you know, you know, like that, you're doing that. So it's that grumbling, that's also a similar kind of word, grumbling, complaining, whatever. He calls it evil. It's an evil thing, though we do it regularly. What he wants us to do is look at it and be disgusted. He actually wants you to have a kind of revulsion. Now, this is not an easy lesson to listen to. I mean, no one really, if you know yourself, if you know the Lord, no one makes it through this lesson unscathed everybody, you're going to see yourself in the mirror. I do. It's a very convicting thing for me to be writing this book on Christian contentment. It's like a a constant conviction journey for me that I've not learned the secret of contentment in any of every situation, but I want it. I yearn for it. I think it's a beautiful thing. All right, so let's talk about this, and I want to give you an image of a magnet, okay? You know, uh, I remember growing up, I was Uh, I used to play with magnets. Uh, Some of you did that, did too, I don't know. Some of you are like, that. It's so geeky. I used to play outside, play with dolls, or I played with with a ball or whatever. You were inside playing with magnets. What's wrong with you? But, I mean, honestly, everybody plays with magnets probably at some point. They're kind of cool. And they're just so mysterious, aren't they? I mean, what is going on between the magnet and the paperclip? I mean, what's happening in between there? I mean, that's... That's just God. That's what's happening there. I don't understand what a magnetic force is all about. But you know those old bar magnets with the N and the S? And you've got the common saying, uh, opposites attract. So there isn't a an, uh, an opposite or mirror image statement. It's like, not opposites repel. That's not cool. I, I was working on, for the book, like, <laughs> is there an opposite expression to opposites attract? I couldn't figure it out. It's like, not opposites repel sounds like... Like, what is that? So I never did figure that one out. I just moved on. As I was writing the chapter, I was like, I don't know. But if you're not opposite, you're going to, um, you know, attract or repel. So if you put end-to-end, you, you feel a, a push, right? That's repulsion. If you wrote, turn one of them around 180 degrees, then they, they go together. That's attraction. Sanctification is made up of a combination of attractions and repulsions, all right? And just being aware that your heart's doing that, okay? Jonathan Edwards in his treatise on religious affection said, the heart has two capacities. First, the ability to analyze and understand things in God's creation or in the spiritual world. And secondly, to be attracted to or repulsed from those things to a greater or less degree, such as liking, loving, or disliking, hating. So that's what's going on. So what Burroughs is doing is he wants you to hate complaining. Just like in the last chapter, he wants you to love or be attracted to Christian contentment. That you would be attracted to the beauty and excellence of Christian contentment and say, I want to be that man, that woman. Conversely, when you look at this chapter, you say, I don't want to be that person. It's an ugly thing for me to complain and so he's going to walk through that with us. So um, there's a lesson in there from Thomas Chalmers on, on expulsive power of a greater affection. You can read about that. But let's just uh, let's keep, keep on going. Fundamentally, what I would like you to do is as we walk through the evils and excuses of a murmuring spirit, I want you to see it in yourself. And, and if you just begin to see it in yourself... Fine. I would like you to take more time with this. I want to take more time with it in the pattern of Psalm 139, 23, 24. Someone read that for us if you would. So what does that mean to you? And how does that apply to this topic? Search me, O God. Know my heart. Show me. See if there's any grievous way in me. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I think we are not aware of all of our sins And in the process of search me, O God, and know my heart, God will not learn anything. I mean, God never learns anything about anything. You know that. That's omniscience. But when God's searching you, it says at the beginning of the psalm, he's already searched you and known you. He already knows you completely. The thing is, you don't know you. And and basically, it's like, tell tell me what I need to know about myself. So on this topic, it's like, tell me ways I regularly complain. Please show it to me. Because if I don't see it, if I'm not aware of it, I'm just going to keep doing it. And so I don't want to keep doing it. So would you please show me the ways that I murmur against you, the ways that I complain? So just think of your normal daily habits. So what do are, what are you like if you discover you're out of K-Cups, you're out of coffee, or however it is you get your coffee delivery system, whatever that is, uh, if it's not there? Or you get in your car and it doesn't start? Or when you get a, a kind of an interesting sound under the engine? That interesting sound is called money. That's what that's called. I mean, when your car is sounding differently than it has ever sounded before, I'll tell you what that is. That's the sound of money. Um, you know, if you get a bill you didn't expect, or if, a, if another driver's rude, um, if you have a physical problem, maybe not one that's major, but it's irritating to you. I mean, just walk through these things. Suppose somebody else in your department gets a promotion you think you deserve. How content are you then? You know, there's just so many different scenarios you could think about in daily life where you complain. You know, and do we really have any conception of how many complaints that we do, you know, in a year? I don't know why. I had this weird thought some time ago. What if I saw all the McDonald's french fries I've ever eaten in my life in one place? Like in a football field? That's just gross. Gross. And then it got even weirder. This is what my brain does. What if you saw them in their basic ingredients? you got the potatoes over here and the oil over here and the salt. I'm like, oh, God. You know, I've eaten. And then, you know, a week later, I was eating McDonald's fries again. You know, here it was. If I could see all the complaints that I've dishonored God by in one place, you know, how shameful is that? So, at any rate, a lot of the early history of the Jewish nation around the time of the Exodus and on into the Exodus is a history of murmuring. Can you think of different occasions? I mean, just think of different times that they, ca- they complained. The manna. Manna. the manna was a clear one. All right. Water. The water also you got Massa and Meribah. Huh? Quail. The quail. The, e- giants in the, land. the giant. Yeah, they're right at the brink and they say, we're not going to be able to do it. The Red Sea you remember what they said? Really snarky. Is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? You brought us out here to die in the desert. That's really sarcastic. It's like, it's like Egypt was covered with tombs and mausoleums and they built a lot of them, you know, and it's just, they're very sarcastic. And it's like, God brushes so much of it aside, but at some point he's like, he's not going to hear anymore. Like for me, the clearest example of this is, is uh, the, the story of the bronze serpent. You remember that? And the thing that precipitated it was murmuring against God about the manna. We're sick of this miserable food. You remember what the miserable food was the manna. All right, how about if I cut it off? We'll see how sick you are of manna at that point because there'd be literally nothing for you to eat. You'd be starving to death. But let me tell you something. If you had just obeyed me and crossed the Jordan River and trusted me when the 10 spies spread a slanderous report about both the land and about meat, you wouldn't be eating manna right now. You would be feeding on, on milk and honey and everything that that good land gave, but instead you're wandering the desert until all of you are dead. But he didn't say all that. What he did is he sent poisonous desert serpents to kill many of them. That's what God thinks about complaining. When you think about that, it's like, is, does God really take complaining that seriously? Yeah, think about the poisonous serpents. That's what he thinks about complaining. Like, whoa. It's kind of like Ananias fire. that story, right? It's like, why did they drop dead? Yeah, they told a lie. What was the reaction of the congregation when they found out what the penalty was for lying? Giving went way up. I'm thinking at least, Dave, maybe honesty went way up too for a while, but but the initial reaction is just terror, fear. It's like, I do that. I'm just the same. I'm no different than Ananias and Sapphira, and I'm still alive. All sin deserves death. All of it. And the wages of sin is death, and you're just so humbled. So you look at that, and it's like God sent poisonous snakes to kill complainers. And then out of that, we get the image of Christ, the bronze serpent lifted up, and you know, but the, the, the sin that's being dealt with there is complaining. There's so many examples of this. And I, actually, the author of Hebrews pulls, pulls in this story with, you know, uh, that David did also in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Massa and Meribah when you murmured and complained against God. And then I swore on oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. It's like that's Psalm 95, and the author of the Hebrews ruminates on that for two chapters in Hebrews 3 and 4. It's like that's a very bad thing, to have a heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God and murmurs and complains against him, and he swore on oath in his anger they would never enter his rest. And he said, don't let that happen to you. And complaining is just part of that. They have just a whole heart of unbelief toward God. But honestly, all of this murmuring that we're talking about here is a display of unbelief. It's an evil heart of unbelief. All right, so let's just walk through um, why. Why it is. All right, first of all, starting with the excellence uh, list. Murmuring is the opposite of praise and worship, right? We were created to praise and worship God. This is the dead opposite. I mean, praise is essentially words. It comes up out of the heart, and then you speak, Oh God. You're a marvelous and a loving and a powerful God. Thank you for all your many blessings. That's praise, right? Murmuring, complaining is is exactly the opposite. You're you're as far from what you should be doing right now as you were created to do. I would love someone to read 1 Peter 2.9. Isn't that awesome? And so for me, the key word there is the word that. You can stick another little word before that. So that... Or the reason why you have become a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. The reason that that, all of that has happened to you is so that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. So putting it simply, you were saved to praise God. That's, That's what he's saying there. Now, how does that line up with murmuring? Well, it doesn't. You are not declaring the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. When we complain, we're doing the exact opposite. Secondly, Burroughs says complaining reveals much corruption in the soul. It's like a medical image he gives here. As contentment displays much grace in the soul, strong grace, beautiful grace, so murmuring argues much Corruption, strong corruption, and vile corruption in your heart. And then he wrote this If a man is so sick that every little scratch of a pin makes his flesh rankle, no matter where it is on the body, you'll say that man's health is very bad. In the same way, if a man com- complains over the smallest provocations, if every little trouble makes him discontent, then his, his spirit is seriously sick. There's something wrong with that person. I mean, we should ask how could such little provocations produce such great complaints? We should ask that. And then he says this very powerfully. He says, I wish I could convince all of the men and women I teach that their complaints are worse than the afflictions they're going through. The afflictions may be bad, but the complaining is worse. It's a worse evil in their life. They may think of the uh, affliction as as an evil, but the complaining is far worse. Thirdly, complaining, murmuring, is a mark of an evil generation. Okay, we've, we've seen that with the, with the Jews. They were a corrupt generation and their bodies, says Paul, were scattered over the desert. Right? We're talking about the, the Jews that were rescued by Moses. Most of them didn't make it into the promised land. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, they're, they're uh, written as a warning to us so that we would not be like them. We don't want to be scattered through the desert, metaphorically, of our lives. We want to make it into the promised land. But the Jews, that first Jewish nation, they were so evil and corrupt in their hearts. They're murmuring, complaining continually against God. That's what he's saying. It's a mark of an ungodly generation. But even more significantly is, uh, uh, Burroughs didn't have this, but I think this is very, very key in this subpoint. If someone could read Romans one twenty one for us. So Romans 1 from 18 to the end of the chapter 32 and actually on into chapter 2 and all that right up into Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is an exposure of the wicked heart of the human race. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right? That's Romans 1.18. A few verses later, though, it says, For although they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God, or what? Give thanks to Him. And you look at that, it's like, wow, not giving thanks is a big deal? It's an incredibly big deal. It's an incredibly big deal. Brenda, go ahead. That's very powerful. Thank you. I remember some time ago, I had um, a couple uh, over to... Uh, Christy and I had a couple over for dinner, and... Um, the wife had recently come to faith in Christ and was baptized. The husband was an ardent atheist. He was a, uh, a Duke graduate student. He was a triathlete. This guy had it all together. I mean, he, he was good at everything. And uh, he actually was, I think, interested in coming to have dinner at our home he actually wanted a spiritual discussion with me. He wanted to play chess with me. That's my own thing. He wanted to beat me at chess. Uh, you know, and it's apologetics, discussing religion. It wasn't literal chess. I'm just using an analogy. He wanted to win a debate with me because he knew I went to MIT, smart guy, whatever. He's going to win. He's going to beat So I'll tell you what, he was tough. Uh, we had so many conversations. He seemed to have an answer for everything. I'll never forget, though, the one moment at the end. I feel like the Holy Spirit gave this to me. I don't know what else I could do for this guy. He was a very arrogant person, very smug. But I also remember that he was very polished in his manners, and he thanked Christy for the meal. He thanked you know, us for having you know, a lot of thanks. I said, you know, I've noticed that you've been very gracious and, and thankful. And uh, he said, you know, he actually said, well, my mom raised me right. You know, he was just so proud of himself uh, at his manners. I said, well, here's the way I look at it. You did that because you came to my home and you ate our food and, and you felt you should say thank, thank you. If I could just say by analogy, we are sitting in God's living room. We're eating God's food. We're sitting on God's furniture. Don't you think we ought to tell him thank you? And he had no answer. This is the first time he was silent. And it came right out of Romans 121. They don't say thank you to God for anything. And uh, it was just, it was was kind of a blessed quiet moment there. (laughs) He didn't have a snappy answer. But I wasn't even looking to win a debate. I'm like, do you not see how dangerous this is that you will not give God thanks? God pours his rain and his sunshine on thankless people every single day. I feel a special burden to thank God for drizzly days that are nasty. Because I know the pagans aren't going to do it. And that's our job. It's like we ought to thank God for the rain because they're not going to say thank you. So we ought to thank God for it. Anyway, to continue this point, it is the mark of an ungodly generation. Jude 14 through 16. He says, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. I'm preaching about that today. Second coming of Christ. What's amazing? These are the words in Enoch, seventh from Adam. He was predicting the second coming of Christ. It's like, oh my goodness, how did he do that? Prophecy. Enoch, seventh from Adam, said this, Behold, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way. And of all the harsh words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you see that? Verse 16, these men are grumblers and fault finders. What are grumblers? Complainers. And they're murmurers, right? And they're speaking hard words against God. And so what's God going to do? He's going to send Jesus to destroy them. That's, that's what this verse is about, second coming. Yeah, Landis. Honestly, shouldn't that settle it? I mean, we don't have to go through all of this. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, "In all things give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's like, okay. So we're done. He just told you, you need to thank Him all the time. That's His will. Thank you, Landis. That's beautiful yeah yeah please go ahead that's a secret i think you know paul talks about the secret sometimes all god wants is for you to do one act of your will and just by an act of your will say i thank you for this trial and sometimes then he'll give you far more grace and we don't deserve grace anyway but he'll just help you it's almost like a, a switch that turns an engine that's very power much power but it's just a little switch sometimes that's what god wants us to do thank you for sharing that's very good at any rate, we should see who is it that Jesus is coming back with the angels to destroy. Well, when we look er, uh, later today at the Battle of Armageddon, when we think about the gathering of Antichrist forces, the gathering of all those wicked kings with their sub-armies, and they come together for one evil purpose. We'll think that the reason for the second coming is to protect the people of God, the believing Jews, I, I think it's reasonable to look at at that point, from this military onslaught. True, true, true. Absolutely. But Jude says it's because they're complainers. And you're like, wow, it's because they're grumblers and say harsh things against God? Yes, that's why he's going to come back and kill them. And so for me, it's like, oh, God, make me not a grumbler or complainer. Let me not say harsh things against God. Burroughs says, you know, he's speaking to churchians, you know, people who have professed faith in Christ. He says, you think that you're better men than others because you don't get drunk or you don't use foul language. But could it be you're every bit as bad as they are when it comes to this issue of complaining and grumbling? So it's like, it's just very convicting. It's a convicting chapter. Fourth, murmuring is accounted counted rebellion. Now, this should make sense if we look at the definition of contentment. Uh, Contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to, submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal. I I said it was perfectly okay to think kingly, not just fatherly. That's okay because he is a king. And so if you are not cheerfully submitting to the kingly decree in your life, what, what are you doing then? What would be a word for that? You're rebelling. You're rebelling. It's like, well, it's not that bad, is it? It's worse than that. I'm just giving words to it. It's bad. So it's accounted rebellion. Accounted means credited as or thought of or written down in God's book as rebellion. So we're commanded to worship God. It's essential, essential that Burroughs gives this image of, of crouching down like a dog under the hand of its master. I remember reading that it's like, well, that's rough. <laughs> dog? But there is an, an, a story of this. Remember the Syrophoenician woman who had a demon-possessed daughter? Remember? And Jesus is up there in the Tyre and Sidon region and he's walking around and this woman, this Canaanite woman, will not be denied, remember? She keeps calling out after him. And Jesus didn't even pay attention like she wasn't even alive. And uh, the disciples come and say, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. And Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I get the picture this woman basically falls down in front of his feet, so he has to step across her. I mean, she's not going to stop. Do you remember what he said to her? It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. I remember thinking of that, and somebody actually listed it, uh, hard sayings of Jesus. It was listed in there. It's like, that's, that's rough. I mean, he's calling this woman a dog. I mean, that's really insulting. But what I want you to do is just kind of dive into that situation for a moment. a moment. Imagine if she's like, what did you say? I said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. Wow. And she gets up off the ground and says, I'm not a dog. I'm a person, and walks away. What would she have received from Jesus that day? nothing you're like wow <laughs> i have to be kind of accredited a crouching dogs like god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and you may think there's like a big gap between you and the dog there's a bigger gap between you and god all right so yes there's a gap between you and the dog of course there is is. You're a human being you're the image of god the dog isn't right but there's an infinite gap between jesus and you and i think we're just so arrogant and she did not react that way she said yes lord but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Daughter was healed. I've often said before, I want to know the rest of the story. In heaven, I'm going to find out. I really believe that. I'm going to find out what happened when she got home and saw her daughter, and they hugged each other and cried, and she told him, uh, her about Jesus, and, and they just went on. I mean, that's a, that's a huge moment. I can't wait for those speculative moments that actually happened. It's awesome. But the key to it was humbling, wasn't it? It's like, I am a crouching dog under the hand of the master. But, flip side, murmuring is rebellion. We will not submit to what God has chosen for us. Uh, Burroughs points to Numbers 16.41 and Numbers 17.10. You remember the story of um, of, uh, uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Remember that? And the ground opened up and swallowed them alive. Well, what what we forget is the next day, the people were angry at Moses and Aaron about it. I didn't make the ground open up what are you angry at me for? But they were angry. And they were were talking of stoning them. It's like, you're you're here to kill all of God's people. They said that. God did not take that moment kindly at all. And the next chapter in 1710, he says, I will rid myself of these rebels. Now he calls their murmuring against Moses and Aaron, rebellion. I'm going to rid myself of these rebels. Well, when discontent comes, it grows into murmuring, then ultimately into open rebellion. We talked about Massa and Meribah. Uh, I mentioned it earlier. Someone read this for us, Psalm 95, 7 through 11. David wrote this 500 years later, but go ahead and read it. So David wrote that hundreds of years after. Massa and Meribah have to do with contention and quarreling, like the places were named for that, the murmuring. And then the author of Hebrews picks up on it in Hebrews 3, who were they who heard and Look at that, rebelled. Were they not all those uh, Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So what we should see is murmuring is counted as rebellion. Rebellion comes from unbelief. And unbelief's the end of the line. I mean, that's the end of the chapter. That's it. So basically, that it's by faith we're justified. By faith we're sanctified. It's by faith we make this whole journey. So if you are murmuring and rebelling, that is not the journey of faith. Now, here's the thing. We know in sanctification, there's a strange mixture of grace and sin. I know that. I want to speak a word of comfort to all of you who have complained. I have too. God is so gracious he covers our complaints with the blood of Christ. He forgives us, but he wants us to repent. He wants us to stop doing it. That's what the purpose of this BFL class is. Not If there's any negative feelings, and there should be, they are redemptive in your life, right? They are helpful in your life. They help you not to sin. So that's, that's the point. Fifth, Uh, murmuring is contrary to the grace of conversion. Now, Burroughs does an incredible job here of walking through what God does to save a soul, to bring a soul to conversion. He says complaining is against each of the steps. It's it's opposed to them. So you're genuinely converted. You're years later, 11, 15, 21 years later, you're murmuring now and complaining. What Burroughs is saying, let's go back and talk about what the Holy Spirit did in you to convert you. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how different complaining, how opposed complaining is to each of the things the Holy Spirit did when he converted you. So what did he do? Well, um, first, he enabled you to see your sin. Secondly, he enabled you to see the greatness, the glory of Christ. Thirdly, he enabled you to turn away from all creature comforts in this world to realize this world is not your home. You wanted heaven, not earth or anything in this world. Fourthly, he enabled you, the Spirit did, to cast your soul fully on Christ as the fountain of all your goodness. That he became your spring of water within you, welling up to eternal life. He became your satisfier. And then fifth, he subdued your soul to Christ the King. He moved in you to subdue yourself so you would submit to Christ's kingdom, his law. And then sixth, um, He turned you to give yourself up in an everlasting covenant, like marriage, to Christ. You took Christ as your portion, and he took you, and so you were together. That's what happened in conversion. Complaining is against all of those, each one of those things. Now, I'm not going to walk through all of these, but you can see. You know, when you're complaining, you have forgotten that you were forgiven 10,000 talents, You have become arrogant and forgot all of the things that the king did to forgive you. Secondly, you have forgotten how glorious and excellent Jesus is. So here's my own illustration. This did not come from Burroughs. Imagine you take a teenager to the Grand Canyon. I'm not saying this has happened. I'm just (laughs) saying imagine. I'm, I'm telling you actually this scenario has not happened, but it came to me. And you get to the rim, the north rim and you're looking out and it's spectacular and beautiful, but then you notice you look down and your teenager isn't even looking. Your teenager is playing a computer game. <laughs> and you're thinking about the plane fare and the hotel and the cost and all that and they're not even looking and not only that, they're angry about what's going on in the computer game. They're losing. Now, what overwhelming temptation might come over you at that moment? (laughs) No, I'm not saying push the kid over. Don't do that. No, not the kid. I'm thinking grab the, the thing. Now you have it in your hand. What do you want to do? Now, see, here's the thing though. you don't want to litter. Okay, this is a beautiful national park, but you feel like it. I mean, so imagine God. It's like apparently Christ isn't excellent enough for you right now. Lift up your eyes and look at the grandeur again. Look at the glory again of Jesus. And what is it you're complaining about? What's going on here that's so important? Nothing. Anyway, that's my illustration. I think I'm going to put that in the book. But I'm afraid of dishonoring my kids, so I need to do a disclaimer. This never happened. They didn't do that. But, I mean, we, we do that. So he just walks through these step by step and does a great job. I'm not going to keep going with you. On this Uh, Next, sixth, it is below a Christian. I'm at F in your outline, F. It is below you. And by that, I'm not trying to pump up your pride, but you're a child of the king, right? You remember that story about uh, Amnon who wanted to sleep with his half-sister Tamar? And so he's laying there complaining and crying and moaning, and his friend, uh, whatever his name was, the, the advisor guy, Jonadab, I think, comes in. It's like, what's up with you? You're the king's son. It's an interesting moment. I mean, you got it made. But his heart is corrupt with an evil lust. So that's a, just a picture of what I'm talking about here. It's almost like you can imagine someone coming and say, why, why are you complaining? I mean, you're a son, a daughter of the king. I mean, you have heaven promised to you. You're, you're an heir of heaven you've got a promise that God will never leave you or forsake you. He's going to give you everything you need in your life. He's going to set up a bunch of good works for you to do. He's, he's going to love you and care for you. He's got the spirit of adoption in your heart and all that. And look at you. I mean, what's up? So I think there's that sense of, I'm a child. I'm a son or daughter of the king. This is beneath me. For me to act like this, for me to complain like this and murmur, this is, should be beneath the Christian. That's what he's getting at. Uh, by murmuring, you undo uh, prayers. You can read about that. I think that's helpful. And then there are evil effects of a discontented heart or murmuring. First of all, it's an incredible time waster. I mean, you, spend a lot of, you waste a lot of time complaining. And as we've said before, it unfits you for duty. I mean, just think about, to the nth degree, evangelism. You're trying to be a witness at work and you're having a really bad day, <laughs> okay? How many of your coworkers are gonna ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have? You don't apparently have any hope. It's like I can do complaining too I'm actually better at complaining than you are why don't you enroll in my complaining school and I'll teach you because you oh Christian are not very good at complaining you don't do it enough it's like who's going to be teaching who they are living in a school of complaining and murmuring and, and discontent and now you're joining them and you're, you're just like them so you're unfit for duty that day it causes wickedness to rise in your heart it's actually a it's like a triggering sin Like when you start doing that, other things are going to start to flow. Not just that you're going to be more susceptible to temptations. I think that's true. But if just other things start to come, you start to, I mean, you could easily say something to a loved one that you'll have a hard time living down, you know, because you're you're in a very uh, negative uh, frame of mind. Promotes um, thankfulness, uh, thanklessness, sorry. Um, Burroughs says this, imagine if you were to give someone a small amount of money and he were to say, what is this you have given me? This is nothing. Wow. I mean, how would you feel? Oh, you, you know, you imagine somebody's just trying to encourage you, send you a, a little note, and there's some money, and whatever. You it open it's like, you know, what is, this, is, this is $20. I mean, it's nothing. That's a very bad moment. You all are like cringing. That's hard to even talk about. It's like, I would never do that. Say, but we do that all the time. God gives us like rivers of little blessings throughout the day, and we're effectively saying by our murmuring and complaining, what is this you've given me? It's nothing. So, all right, now let's briefly, we've got about six or seven minutes left, let's talk about any excuses that you may have. I didn't actually like exudite these at all, um, but I know that you probably have some excuses. You're like, all right, wait a minute now. I mean, you're being really hard on me here. So I actually brainstormed earlier this week. I was just thinking of all the different excuses that I have heard or that I have used or that Burroughs gives. Some of them that Burroughs gives just seemed a little odd to me, strange. So, but I used some of them, I didn't use all of them. Um, They're just interesting, the excuses. I will say this about the Puritans. No one probed the psychology of the sinner better than the Puritans. They don't give you any ground to stand on. And in that, they're following the Apostle Paul. One of you will say to me this, like Romans 9. One of you will say to me, then why does God still find fault for who resists his will? Like, Paul does that. He's like, I know what you're thinking. So that's about what we do now is we try to work through the excuses. I know what you're thinking. All right, let's, let's try it. Number one, it's not complaining. I'm just venting. <laughs> That's what I call the therapeutic view of, of uh, complaining. <laughs> the therapeutic view. What does that mean? It's just, what does venting mean? Blowing off steam, you know? The implication is if you cap the volcano, there's going to get it, you'll be even worse explosion later on. How would you answer that? We're going to try to refute all of these excuses. We're not accepting any of them. All right, so how would you refute the therapeutic view of venting? Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, and you could feel frustrated at a friend like that, but that's a genuine friend. Uh, actually, really is. Does it work? Are you actually better off after you vented? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> 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 well.
0: <laughs>
1: maybe it is therapeutic. <laughs> I think you actually stir things up. You, you stir things up. You actually can start connecting thoughts, and and it actually is pulling out a bigger muck. Uh, I think it's actually not therapeutic at all. Yeah, you're ramping up. You're not venting. It's actually ramping up. That's a, good, that's a great image. I love that. Yeah, it's not therapeutic. It actually makes it worse. At the end, you're worse. And, and what, I, what I wrote in the chapter on this is, first of all, Jesus is the, is the great physician. He'll heal you. He'll not, He's not going to heal you this way, though. Keep in mind, also, this is something I do write about, is there is a godly complaining to God in prayer modeled for us in the book of Psalms. How many complaints do the psalmist pour out before God? with the permission of the Holy Spirit. So there's a way to do it. Um, so this is not therapeutic at all. I think we should totally uh, sh- just shred this one. This is a satanic lie. You're not gonna feel better. You're actually gonna be more sinful. You're cut off from the one who can help you. You should be pouring out your thoughts to God. In prayer. Right, I'm just gonna walk through these real quickly. It's a uh, quarter past. Um, this is from Burroughs. I'm, I'm really just genuinely troubled over my sin. I know it seems like I'm complaining, but I'm just so troubled at what a sinful person I am. He's like, come on, don't lie to yourself. Um, you know, these are all just excuses for complaining. Uh, God has abandoned me. So these are people that are very depressed and discouraged. and they, they, But the thing is, this is, not, this is incredibly dishonoring to God. If you, if you look at it, one of the things that God had against them was the, was the saying, is God really among us or not? That really angered him. It's like, It's What do I have to do? I mean, that was the Red Sea crossing, the man of the water and all that. And you're asking if I'm here? W- what other explanation do you have for all these signs and wonders you've seen me do? We have greater evidence now that Christ has come, died, risen again. We have the indwelling spirit. We have all these promises. For us to say, is God really here? Or God has abandoned me? That's, that would make God a liar. He said, I will never leave you, ever. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the fire, the fire is not going to hurt you. I promised you this. But now you're saying I've abandoned you? It's very dishonoring to God. Or this one, you don't know my wife or my husband. Or you don't know my boss. You don't know my neighbor. You don't know my kid. Whatever. If you, what, what's the implication? Like these things, if you were in my situation, you complained complain too. Well, first of all, so what? I'm a bad person, right? That doesn't prove anything. But, but the fact is, the implication is this situation is so great. This trial is so great. There's nothing that I can do. I must complain. You know, that's not the case. I never expected this. Well, I actually should tell you to expect more things. You expected to have a life of prosperous ease in this world? You ought to pray ahead saying, Lord, I know you told me in this world we will have trouble. I know right now things are going well. Things are going well in our marriage with our kids, with our house and all that. But I understand too, everything, anything could be taken from me and you will still be a loving God. So you should go ahead of yourself and anticipate trials that might never come, not in an anxious way, but just say, Lord, I know you could do this. Uh, this one's really pretty poisonous. It's where the person's so bitter, they're going through a trial, somebody says something like, I know how you feel, and they lash out, say, you don't know anything like how You've never been anything through anything like what I'm going through. And it's like, that's a very bad thing to do. First of all, you're maximizing your own trial. You're thinking you're the only person on earth that's ever gone through anything like this at all. But God says that the trials you go through, that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are going through the same kinds of things. So, you know, that's a very bad thing to say. Uh, How about this one? I don't deserve this. (laughs) Let's talk about deserve, okay? Let's spend some time on deserve. Let's go back to the basics of the gospel. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, as someone often say in a positive way, better than I deserve. Um, All things are. Uh, Psalm 73 is the psalmist was so angry at the prosperity of the wicked that he felt, it was like righteous complaining, remember? He was, he was just so angry at the wickedness of the world system he just felt justified in complaining. But he actually said, you know, as for me, my feet almost slipped because I actually envied the prosperity of the wicked. And he just walks through it and he gets to a healed place where he says, you know, whom have I in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire beside you. Interesting, it links back to Philippians 4 too, he says you know, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's that strength theme again. God strengthens me to know that I have nothing on earth but him. And then, (laughs) yes, I know I'm complaining. I know it's bad, but I can't help myself. Well, now we got to go into the basic doctrine of sanctification. You are not a slave to sin. You don't ever need to sin again. So don't make excuses. Just put it to death. So let's uh, close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to study uh, the evils and excuses of a murmuring heart. Help us to put this sin to death. And now as we go into the sanctuary, Lord, help us to be genuinely thankful for the things that come. Help us not to complain about anything in the sanctuary, how cold or hot, the music, the the song choices, how long the preacher uh, preaches for or anything. Um, But help us instead to realize that all of these things come from your gracious hand and to be thankful in Jesus' name, amen.
0: and for the glory of God.